Well, today we start a brand new series. This is something that we had planned a long time ago. We were going to be doing the Apostles' Creed kind of in this season of church. And as the events of our season sort of unfolded, one of the questions we had to ask was whether this was still the right thing to be teaching. Should we do something really topical and timely related to what we're going through as a, a people on earth? Is, is this the thing? And, and the more we've gotten into it, the more we've realized that um, we are in a season as a people that is kind of startling newness for all of us. But that's the best time to root ourselves in ancient truth. And so as a church, we're going to continue on with what we had planned because I think God knew before we knew that this was going to be what we needed in this time. And so whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or this is your first inclination to look into what faith might be because of all that's going on around us, my hope and my prayer is over the next several weeks that you're going to get a sense of what the true foundation of our faith is. And not only what is it that we believe, but why it actually matters in our everyday life. And so I'm excited for what we're getting into. Um, Albert Muller says this about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is what we're going to be studying. And he says, all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none believe less. Anybody who calls themselves a Christian believes what is in the Apostles' Creed. It's kind of the foundational basis of our faith and our belief. And so this creed created by man, but brought forth from biblical ideas, this creed allows us to find a common set of beliefs. An apostle is just someone sent on a mission. That's all an apostle is. And so we go, okay, well, who are the apostles? Why is this their creed? No, you and I are the modern apostles. We're sent out on a mission. And a creed is simply a set of beliefs, a statement of doctrine. And so this is our sent beliefs. These are the beliefs that we are sent with to go into the world and make a difference. And so what this series ultimately becomes, this is a series about about beliefs, but also about behavior, about what we believe, but why it actually matters in our everyday life. If you think about it in that sense, ultimately our behaviors reveal our beliefs. Our behaviors reveal our beliefs. The way you behave reveals what you truly believe. And if this season didn't show us that, no season will. So the guy walking around in the Soviet era gas mask at Walmart His behavior as he carries his 96 mega pack of toilet paper out the front door reveals what he believes about the virus. Other examples of people who are out, you know, licking doorknobs because they think it's all a hoax. And and your behavior will identify what you believe about where we are right now. There was a kid, we were out on a family walk, social distancing walk, you know, and we're flayed out along the street, but we're just desperate to get outside. And our family was out in the neighborhood and the strangest thing, this kid comes around the corner on a bike, but he's holding a trombone, you know, like the big, a big, tr- he's holding a trombone and he has this really goofy look on his face and he passes us. And as soon as he gets beyond us, he starts playing his trombone while riding his bicycle down the street. I don't know what that reveals about what he believes, but his behavior told me that he was probably going insane, uh, social distancing in his house. I just, I just felt like that was important to share with you. People are going nuts and that's okay. Um, we're all needing a little bit of outside time. So if you have a trombone and a bicycle, I, apparently that helps. So go ahead and, and go for that. What we're going to find out in this next few weeks is updating our beliefs can actually update our behavior. So not only does our behavior evidence our beliefs, but sometimes when we update our beliefs and we learn to believe new things, that can begin to change our behavior. New understanding influences our behavior 
And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to be actually doing two weeks in one. We had planned to start this last week. Obviously, some things got changed, so we're going to compress two into one and stay right on track. And this week, we're, we're starting the Apostles' Creed, which it starts this way. Let's just read it together. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. These are the first two lines of the Apostles' Creed. This is what we're going to unpack a little bit today. What we're going to find out is God is intimately personal and uniquely powerful. And so we're going to understand why this belief, this I believe language, we're going to say, why does that matter? And why does the lordship of Jesus, why is Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord, why does that matter? And so let's start with God, the Father Almighty. First thing we need to know and understand is that God is personal. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking. Jesus says this, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't pray like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is instructing his disciples, his students, he's explaining to them how to pray. And I think what we need to see as he does this is God is not a force. God is not a principle. God is not a higher power. He's not an impersonal state of consciousness. He's father. Jesus says he's your father. He says when we pray, we should pray our father. God is intimately personal, which eliminates the possibility that somehow he's Jesus's father, but he's just a distant deity to me. He's just some distant force out there in the cosmos. Jesus talks to his fellow human beings and says he's our father, he's my father, but he's yours too. This is hard for us as Americans. We believe in God as a a large generalization. Americans are a people of great belief. But we don't all believe the same thing. This would say that we believe in a personal God. Most Americans actually don't believe in a personal God. They believe in sort of a cosmological God. Not a personal, knowable, uniquely interested in your existence and experience kind of God, but sort of a hands-off puppet master at times, but maybe not all that caring sort of creature. It's hard in our culture. It's hard in uh, our culture. It's hard being a skeptical people, being enlightened people. We actually experience greater spiritual darkness. Sometimes the more light we get in a worldly sense. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, he says this in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse, these people. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? It says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That it's possible that the more worldly wisdom we gain, the less we think we need an eternal God. Paul says God's presence is clear, but humanity is always looking for another reality. Humanity is always looking for something greater. Humanity is always looking to create their own version 
of truth. And so claiming to be wise, Paul says, our foolish hearts can be darkened. This is a warning for us. We live in a university town. And it's a warning that as much as we can pursue more knowledge, more knowledge doesn't lead us to greater knowledge of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with education. It's actually great. It can serve the world. It can alleviate poverty. The the way we learn how to be better as a people is a great thing, but we have to be careful not to fall into the trap that thinking that the, the wiser we get, the better we become. Because if we lose our humility, if we lose our reliance on God, if we lose our understanding that we are creature and not creator, then we get the world out of balance. So the first hurdle we face in recognizing that that we believe in God, our Father, the Almighty, the first one is that we have to not be the Almighty. We have to recognize that God is intimately personal with us, but he is the Almighty one, and we are the created ones. Second hurdle we face is we're scarred people. We carry wounds as people, wounds from uh, our fathers, wounds from our leaders. Uh, Almost everyone I've ever met, everyone who sat in my office for counseling, everybody who's driving through a problem, we all have these wounds from leaders we've had or fathers that they've let us down in some way. That even the best father right now, even the best dad sitting in their living room watching this with his family, leading them in prayer before and devotion after, even the best worldly dad still falls short of the goal. Even the best worldly dad is wildly imperfect. The result is that people have trouble relating to God as personal father because our experience with our worldly fathers hasn't been perfect. Whether it's been abuse or absenteeism, whether it's something in between, we struggle relating to God as father because our personal fathers have been less than perfect. And so we begin to project that onto God. And that gets us a lot of strange, sad results in our society as we attempt to find a way to separate God from fatherhood because, because man, my father experience wasn't the best, and so God can't be father because, because that gets all mixed up in my heart, and I don't know how to love him because maybe he's not perfect because my dad wasn't perfect. We get all these strange ideas out of that. Denomination in America, the Presbyterian Church, USA. There's a couple different Presbyterian churches, but Presbyterian Church USA is a denomination that in 2006 approved um, alternate titles for the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 2006, in response to what their people were telling them, in response to some some angst about about how this all feels when we have to deal with God, who's the, the Father, this denomination of, of Christian America actually said, we're going to come up with some alternate titles. So you don't have to say God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. So they improved some other things because maybe Father was troublesome for some people and, and because it ignored the feminine relationship in the world or because it evoked a flawed masculinity. Here's what they came up with. Instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they approved Rainbow, Arch, and Dove as the new trinity. Or what about compassionate mother, beloved child, and life-giving womb? This was actually approved by an American denomination of Christianity that, that instead of saying God the Father, instead of saying God, Jesus, and Spirit, we would say rainbow, arch, and dove because maybe those were less offensive. They didn't bring up the wounds from our past. Man, you can pray to God as mother if you want, but it's not the God that Jesus references in the Bible. It's not the God, the Father that Jesus asked us to pray to. 
It's not the God of the creation and the flood, of the fall and the resurrection. Jesus said, pray then in this way. And he didn't say, delicate rainbow, we have some ideas for you. It didn't say, compassionate mother. Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father. This is a subtle form that's seen in a sort of almost ridiculous fashion of how we attempt to create God in our image. That that seeing God through a human lens, we create God in our image with words and concepts that I find pleasing rather than seeking the fullness of his design. The reality is God the Father is perfect and intimately personal. And so if we can begin to set our wounds aside, knowing that they cloud our vision of who God the Eternal Father is, if we can learn to accept God on his terms, we begin to see clearly. God will give us new eyes to see. And so we can, with confidence, say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And and the creed goes on, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Which is that God is uniquely powerful. Not only is God intimately personal with us as our Father, but he's he's uniquely powerful. I meet with a lot of people in a lot of contexts in my job. And there's a, there's a power move that is, uh, I think, widely acknowledged but never spoken of. The power move for meeting up with someone else is getting there before them. You know this power move? I meet with somebody about once a month for breakfast. I have never beat him to breakfast. He's there before me at the diner every single time, reclining, legs crossed, sipping his coffee. I come in a minute before we're supposed to meet, and he looks at me like, come on been here for an hour. You don't even know. He got to pick the table. He's already knows what he's going to eat. I'm showing up behind. He's got the power move. He's already there. Sipping coffee, all relaxed. And I'm coming in fluster, trying to figure it out. I'm playing from behind. Preeminence matters. Preeminence matters in a meeting. Preeminence matters in life. Being first matters. When you're the first one there, you set the rules of engagement. It's like home court advantage. In 2014, the NBA Finals, the San Antonio Spurs were playing the Miami Heat, and game one of the, game one of the series was in San Antonio, and it's in June. And I don't know what you know about San Antonio in June, but if you crack an egg on your dashboard, you can fry an egg in a matter of minutes, because it's hot. It's hot, it's humid, and in game one of the finals in 2014, the air conditioner at the arena broke, or so they would have us believe. The result of which is inside the building, it was 90 plus degrees with high humidity as 19,000 people were breathing out of their mouths disgustingly and there was no air circulating in the building. The result for the teams on the court was this. It's become known as the cramp game because the best player in the world, LeBron James, couldn't finish the game. He cramped up so badly throughout the game through his dehydration. That the players used to playing in climate-controlled buildings and in a coddled environment had to play in 90-plus degree heat and high humidity. And LeBron James, he kept cramping up. He couldn't finish the game. And as a result, the Spurs win the game. They go on to win the championship. And people started to wonder if maybe there was a little bit of conspiracy here. Like maybe, maybe the Spurs having home court advantage in Texas, maybe they knew what they were doing. Maybe they just switched off the air conditioner. Maybe. Maybe not. But the, the idea is, when you have home court, when you're the first to arrive, you set the conditions for all that happens next. And so having home court and maybe switching off the air conditioner, maybe pulling the circuit, maybe that got you an advantage. 
What does this have to do with anything you're asking? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God got to the meeting first. God is sitting there in the diner, legs crossed, sipping his coffee as we show up going, what took you so long? Been here the whole time. God is playing with home court advantage. He is preeminent and uniquely powerful. The earth, it says, was formless and void. Tohu vabohu is the, the phrase there, which means was literally nothingness. You could say it's nothingness. It was confusion is another way to translate that or chaos. What do we find that God does with nothingness, confusion, and chaos? From nothing, God creates something. From confusion, God creates order. And from chaos, God crafts meaning. It was God's desire and God's energy that made this place, that preemptively started this entire journey for us. And and we get caught up on details. Even as Christians, we get caught up on this detail. We go, okay, well, I can believe that God was the creator, but he had to have done it in the way I believe he did it, which I think is missing the point. Whether God did it in six literal days or whether God, it was a metaphor and, and poetic language and God did it in billions of years, either way, the point of the story is that God created, that out of nothingness, God created somethingness. Think of the best book you've ever read. You ever asked how long it took to write it? Whether someone used a quill and ink or a typewriter to put it onto a page the first time. We don't ask those questions because it's, it's irrelevant at the end of the day to the work that was put forth, to the creation that was developed. Do I think it'd be really interesting to know exactly how God created the earth, exactly what the details are? I, I think it would be really interesting. But what I, what I don't think is that it actually would change my faith one way or the other. Because my faith is that God is the creator, the Father Almighty, and he created heaven and earth. And how he chose to do it is beyond my understanding no matter what. Arguing about how something is done loses the who and the what of what was done. God created, that's who did it, and what did he create all of this? He is preeminent, and that's what ultimately matters as we talk about it in this lens God was preeminent, and what is preeminent always matters. God is over everything because he created everything. He predates everything. He orders everything. His creation, he gets to set the rules. Imagine Steve Jobs walks into Heaven's Diner. Steve Jobs, the old Apple guru. God's just sitting there in the diner drinking coffee, legs crossed, smiling. What took you so long, Steve? And Steve Jobs pulls out his iPhone and he goes, check this out, iPhone. I came up with this. Microchips, like sand. We figured out how to turn sand into chips and processors. And now it's got a screen and you can get anywhere for any time. It's a computer in your pocket. It's incredible. God takes a sip of his coffee. Nods sweetly. Says, that's interesting. Computers, microchips in your pocket. I blinked and matter came into being. Imagine the conversation as we we put ourselves in this incredible place of creator. God created all of this. God willed it to be. God spoke 
and the world came into existence. And the reason this matters is because classical Darwinism is problematic because it puts material first. I got nothing against Darwin. Just know that he has the story wrong. He puts material first, that, that there was this ooze, there was this slime, there was this sludge, there was this something that existed first, and then life showed up. And that's just the wrong telling of the story, that before there was anything, the world was formless and void, and God was there. And so life tumbles out of God, because he was first. He was preeminent. Christianity begins with God but life begins with God. And recognizing that puts us in our proper place in the universe that created things don't get to set the rules and the order that it's the creator who gets to do that. Which takes us to the final point, which is Jesus. The Apostles' Creed is essentially a confession of Jesus. We spend the next so many weeks going through this creed together. And and what we're doing is, is essentially, it's a confession of Jesus, of who Jesus is. And there's this kind of introduction and there's sort of a conclusion on it. But the real crux of the Apostles' Creed is all about Jesus. Because as Christians, as people of the Christ, we are about Jesus. Too many of us, however, think of Jesus like a fire extinguisher, like some sort of a cosmic fire extinguisher. That God was looking around and as the world sort of tumbled into bleakness, he, he went up to the wall and it said, in case of fire, break glass. And God punches through the glass and pulls out Jesus and sends him down to the earth. Like it was his backup plan. Like maybe he had this good idea that he'll create a son to come to earth to take care of the stuff that went wrong. And what scripture tells us is that Jesus wasn't someone's backup plan. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus was creator, present at creation. Jesus is fully God. And the result is this, that if God started this and God orders this, then we get to see that God saves this, that God redeems this, that God rescues this. So before we reduce God to an impersonal force that sort of loves us like a farmer loves a field, like in its totality, I, I, I kind of take care of it and I shepherd it or nurture it. God's not an impersonal force. Instead of thinking that God maybe knows about us but is, is distant from us or admires us as a unit, as his creation, but not really Individually, we have to stop and consider what is true. And Jesus was really clear about this. Jesus says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That that was an individual response to an individual problem from a God who saw it becoming before the creation of the world. That God so personally loved his creation, so personally loved you, his created being. That he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, begotten meaning of God. He sent Jesus, who was of God, to come and be the rescuer, to give you hope and salvation. And that belief, as Jesus is pointing out, begins to open up eternity again. If you look at the, the phrase, if you look at the scripture, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, belief opens up eternity again. It gives us a new perspective and an eternal perspective about what is eternal And who is eternal? Jesus comes to turn our worship and our eyes back to God. That's all it is. In a world where we've gotten things upside down, where sin has created a place where we think of ourselves as preeminent, 
We're the first person at the party. We always think as us, and we didn't see God sitting in the corner sipping coffee already. Where we think of ourselves as creators when we are really created. When we put ourselves in, in a disordered place, Jesus shows up to return our eyes, return our gaze, and ultimately return our hearts and our trust back to what is eternal, which is God. To put God back on the throne. When we talk about sin, sin is almost always the result of us elevating ourselves above God. So God comes down to rescue. And you say, okay, why does this matter today? Like, even if I believe in this concept, even if I get on board with this kind of uh, overarching umbrella of belief, why does this matter? Like, how does missing this ruin your Monday is the better question. Because our failure to rightly identify God leaves the position open and invites us to audition for a role we are incapable of playing. Our failure to rightly identify God, put God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth in his right place, to put Jesus his Son as our Lord and our Savior in his right place, our failure to do that puts us in uh, auditions for the role of God, of Savior. And we're incapable of those roles. When we fail to recognize God in his place, we try to take the place. And when we fail to see Jesus as God's rescue plan for the world, we attempt to become the plan. Nothing is more frustrating or more dispiriting than attempting to do something you cannot possibly do. Nothing's more frustrating than taking on a role you weren't designed to play. Nothing is more frustrating than being miscast as something you'll never be able to fulfill you were not created to bear the burden of creation. You just weren't. You were not created to carry the weight of redemption. Your shoulders cannot hold it. Our deepest failings and our darkest soul-level frustration comes when we, the created, attempt to do the job of creator. Say it again. Our deepest failings and our darkest soul-level frustration comes when we, the created, attempt to take on the job of creator. And we live in a, a pretty out-of-control time right now. We live in a place where all of us on some level feel like kind of profoundly out of control of what's around us. That leads to anxiety. It leads to frustration. It leads to all these different emotions that come to us because we cannot control the circumstances around us. And I would argue that within even this current crisis we're going through as a people— that our deepest failings within it, that our darkest soul level frustrations within it comes when we, the created people, attempt to control the universe around us. And when we find ourselves most frustrated, it's because we lack control. And it calls us to go back to what is true. It calls us to go back to, to who is true. That when our lowest moments and our loneliest times come, it's because we're attempting to be the savior of the world and we were never designed for that. So where in your life are you most discouraged right now? Where do you find your lowest point? Where are you most frustrated or dispirited? My, my challenge to you, even I would say my argument for you, is that often in those places where you are most in pain, you will find that you have diminished God and placed your faith in yourself. And that always ends in darkness. 
Because we've gotten the thing out of order. We've gotten the creation order out of order. And, and we cannot carry that weight. And so it ends in frustration and sadness and loneliness and defeat and darkness. I will challenge you to release the pressure of saving the world. Release the pressure of saving yourself. Be reminded that you were created in God's glory for God's joy. Remind you that Jesus was sent as God's only begotten son, that Jesus was sent to be our Lord and Savior, and so we don't have to apply for that role. It's already taken, and he did a pretty good job of it. Instead, the opportunity for us is we say, how does this apply to my life? What does this do for my daily existence? Instead, you and I, we can play our role, the role we were designed for. That role of apostles as sent ones, people put out on a mission. Jesus said, Basically, God, you gave me a mission, and I'm giving the same mission to my people. So I send them out the same way you sent me. We are sent ones. You and I are apostles. And living as apostles under a king, living as apostles who don't have to occupy the throne, we have the great joy of living in a world where we are not required to save it, but we are allowed to go and participate. We get to go know Jesus and make him known because we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that God started this, that God orders this, and that God saves this. Saves it through Jesus because we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. When God is on the throne of my life and Jesus is reinstalled as my one and only Savior, I am released to live my best life, overflowing in abundance as I carry his mission onward. Church, our desire, our hope, and our opportunity today is to take some really fundamental beliefs and recognize that where they are missing in our life, we find frustration. And so instead, we lean back into what was established 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago, when the Apostles' Creed was first developed and we got back to the ancient roots of a beautiful faith. And you and I get to go back to those roots today, no matter what the modern world looks like, if we can hold our belief in the right thing, then we know that we're going to be safe. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for ancient truth in our modern anxiety. Lord, thank you for ancient truth in a world that is... uh, feeling more and more out of control as the days go. Lord, we trust you. We believe in you. Father, we believe that you created this place, that you've ordered our days, and that nothing surprises you as we go. So God, we lean in. We lean into you as our creator. We lean into Jesus as our savior. We place our trust and our surrender there. Father, would you lead us? Would you continue to send us to be light in the darkness? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.